This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Myself, I'm Esther Heatlani Kandari. I'm a member of the Dialogue Board, and I'll be conducting our meeting today. Our teacher, none other than Jennifer Finlayson Fife, um, we're really grateful that she's taken the time to, to share her thoughts and her wisdom and her experience with us today on a lesson that can be, I think, a little sticky for, for everyone. So Jennifer Finlayson Fife is a relationship and sexuality educator and coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois with a PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College. She wrote her dissertations on LDS women and sexuality and has taught college-level courses on human sexuality. She currently teaches online courses and lives and live workshops to individuals and couples seeking to develop their capacity for deeper emotional and sexual intimacy. She is a frequent contributor to the subjects of sexuality, relationships, and spirituality to LDS-themed blogs, magazines, and podcasts, including Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist podcast series. She and her husband are the parents of three children and are active members of the LDS Church. And to iterate, as always, Jennifer here is here to share her personal thoughts and experiences, and her opinions do not reflect that of the Dialogue Board or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we'll turn the time over to Jennifer now. Thank you. Um, okay, so um, today, as you may know, we're going to talk a bit about the story of David and Bathsheba. And in particular, what I want to focus on is more the fall of King David, uh, the spiritual fall of King David. We know that David was beloved by God, right? He was a shepherd boy who, against the odds, killed the giant Goliath with a slingshot. He grew up to become Israel's king at the age of 30 and is reputed to be Israel's greatest king. He united Israel and made Jerusalem the capital, and he endeavored to point the people of Israel towards God. So under his reign, the kingdom had never been stronger. And David was favored by God. One might even argue that David seemed to be so special that he was almost above the human condition in a sense. The prophet Samuel referred to David as, quote, a man after God's own heart. So the story of David's fall, then, I think is an exceptional story because it's a very human story. And I believe one that we must see ourselves within. Um, because I think we are both beloved and special to God, as well as very vulnerable as human beings to our own hubris, to our own self-deception. And I think the story captures a process that's really inherent to our spiritual development and how we find ourselves, essentially. So I wanna first just say, because probably some people would imagine what I might be focusing on in this story is Bathsheba and the issue of sexual agency, which is the kind of work my dissertation was looking at women's LDS women's sexual agency or lack thereof and the ways that we can in patriarchal narratives rob women of their agency and particularly sexual agency. Um, that is not what I'm going to focus on today. Um, woman, is, sorry, Bathsheba is a woman without agency in this story, or if she has any, it's obscured from the reader. She's treated like a prize, something to be taken or given, someone who belongs to men, whose fate is determined by them, not as a person with any meaningful choices in her own right. 
And it's quite shocking, really, to read stories like this, where the rape of a woman is too often turned into a lesson about modesty or pornography. And of course, misses the essential point that Bathsheba, from all we can tell, was raped and used. And then her husband was killed in order to mask and cover David's sins. So, um, so even though I care very much about the question of women's agency and the potential destructiveness of, of just even girls reading stories like this, right, because of what it says about or implies about how women are seen by God, that's not what I want to focus on today. In fact, I did, I could probably post this if people want to care. I did do a lesson um, in a public forum a few years ago where that was the focus of, of um, my comments. But what I want to focus on today is how dramatic it is that David, right, falls so completely. There's really no way to sugarcoat how tragic and destructive David's choices were, how dramatic his fall from grace was. The sin that David consciously committed and then the consequences that spiraled out of control as a result. I think that it might be easy to see David as different from us because he was both perhaps more favored or seemed to be living such a, um, I don't know, such a life sort of different than any that you or I would live. But, and also in fact, more able to be destructive given his power, right? When people do have power, they can do more harm. But again, I think the story of David is an essential story for all of us. It's an important story of human self-deception and the ease of self-service. It's a story of the perniciousness of sin and our darker selves. We're exceptional as human beings at justifying our current realities or perceptions of reality and ignoring the information or, or the self-awareness that we need to in fact be wise or in fact to grow. We, I was taking a CEU course yesterday and um, on anxiety, but there was, what the instructor was talking about was talking about how we organize what we see by what we already know. So if we look at, um, you know, just a, a several dots, you know, that we impose a square upon those dots, right? Or we impose what our view is onto reality, not the other way around. Our minds are very good at wanting reinforcement. We want to feel that we know what is real, but the vulnerability we have is to keep reinforcing the world as we know it rather than the world as it is. So we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. And that's natural, but if we don't see it and go through the kind of soul tormenting process of waking up to deeper truths, we really deeply limit ourselves, we damn our progression. So, um, Theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr said, quote, all human sin seems so much worse in its consequences than in its intentions, right? The intentions of our sins, usually we find ways to justify them. They serve our egos. They serve our desire for control. They serve our view of ourselves as good often. But 
will obscure from us the self-deception in it, the evil in it, the self-service in it. And then often those choices will then undermine our lives and our relationships. So if we won't face our darker selves, right, we're a danger. We're a danger to ourselves, to others, and very importantly, to our spiritual progression and our spiritual wisdom. I think one of the central themes of Christ is that the greatest sin is to not recognize that we're all sinners, that we all make mistakes and fall prey to our own arrogance. Um, the writer and thinker Scott Peck in his book, People of the Lie, says that basically in his view, the greatest evil lies in our demand to see ourselves as good. Um, Thomas Merton um, also says, a Catholic theologian says, quote, the basic and most fundamental problem of the spiritual life is the acceptance of our hidden and dark self, right? Um, today um, in church earlier this morning, there was a lesson about not following what the wicked say and do. The problem is, in my view, is that we are the wicked, are we not? Like, are we not all the wicked? And the idea that the wicked exists outside of ourselves is a way to not see love and know others and to also prop up a false security in ourselves that we are good and others who are different from us are not. And so seeing it as outside clouds our judgment and allows us to put ourselves above others, which is exactly what Christ was challenging in this, uh, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who would look at others, judge others and prop themselves up against them. We're very good as human beings because we want so much to see ourselves as good, to have this ego reinforcing perception of reality that's in fact false. We're very good at creating a persona right, a way we want to be seen by others and a way we want to see ourselves that we imagine is more acceptable than the reality of who we in fact are. And then we can buy into it ourselves. And then when our spouse doesn't buy into it or other people, we think they're the problem or we want the idea that they're the problem. And we'll often make them pay for not seeing us the way we want to be seen. And, you know, this is a lot of what I will teach people is that marriage is a very good at teaching us about who we really are not because our spouse has a perfect understanding or doesn't have their own self-deceptions often but our our view of who we are and who we in fact are through our behaviors the incongruity will often come out in the marital conflicts that we often want to see ourselves as better and kinder and more capable of love than we are. And so we'll usually try to take our spouse down before we'll take ourselves down, right? Or we before we will really confront what they know about us that is in fact right, that we keep trying to run away from because we love our own hubris. We love our own ego reinforcing self-deceptions. So this desire in us, very human as it is, makes it really difficult for us to recognize uh, that we are capable of good, but we are also capable of evil. Um, 
again, that's where the evil thrives. When we talk about natural man, a lot of us put it in the frame of sexuality, but I think natural man is the best understood as the self-serving, self-deceiving part of us that resists humbling, resists growth, resists change. Uh, because it hurts, because it feels bad, because it just sucks to have somebody, you know, to come into that self-confrontation and to feel the humiliation of it. And so we often resist it, thinking that we will save ourselves by resisting the truth, rather than we really do damage to ourselves in our relationships when we won't step into what is in fact true and face our darker selves. So, so remember you know this is the story of beloved david right the faithful shepherd boy so to to acknowledge the destructiveness of his sins right is to challenge the any view that there are good people and then there are bad people right david is both a murderer adulterer and predatory king as well as a hero having accomplished noble goals and much beloved of god so while our sins may be different than David's, we are all like him. We are a mix of sinner and saint, every one of us. We desire ego reinforcing praise and we can quietly do what's needed without reward. We both love what's true and seek the good and self-deceive and deny inconvenient truths about ourselves or others. We love and care for those around us. We also hate, right? Our hatred, our capacity to love can be inspired by others, our capacity to hate can also be inspired by others. So we are complicated. And to pretend that we are well-intentioned, right? Even if imperfect, I mean, there's a lot of theory out there, counseling theory and so on, that we're all well-intentioned, but just stumbling around, speaking the wrong love language and so on. That's just not how I see who we are as human beings. That we are not well-intentioned sometimes, right? Oftentimes we don't even know our own self-serving intention and how it's playing out in our behavior. And so if we won't face our darker selves, our darker selves will run the show. And you know, so much of being a trustworthy person is to know within yourself where you are not trustworthy, where you are um, fallible, where you are vulnerable to your own self-deception. And I see in the work I do with couples that when someone will really start to face a part of themselves and come into a deep, um, what's the like self awareness and they can no longer live with this part of themselves and they start to face it and deal with it. That's when the marriage improves. That's when the spouse starts to open up and trust because they don't have to be the messenger anymore because the person has come into a self-recognition and can't live with this part of themselves right that's so much of how our development happens is we move out of a um what's the word i would say like a there's a word for it i can't think of it right now but like a that we're in sync with what we're doing we feel comfortable with what we're doing a lot of times we're just we're just acting out the world as we know it and what happens is some life event some relational challenge something pulls us out of being in this egocentric behavior into ego dystonic 
self-awareness. We kind of move into the ability to look back and see who we really are or what our behavior reveals about our minds rather than what we have been telling ourselves about our minds. And that disharmony is what drives change. As a therapist and coach and teacher, I'm trying often to help people move into disharmony with their self-deceptive narratives. I'm often trying to show them what their behavior is revealing about their mind, that their narratives are trying to obscure about their mind. Sometimes in that ego dystonic state, what people do is they say, Jennifer is full of it, which sometimes I am, right? Sometimes I am wrong, right? Or I have my own ego needs that are getting in the way, but, but it's to shoot the messenger, so to speak, and to pull back and get back to this, the mind state that you know and want. When we have courage and are humble, we take ego dystonic behavior to push ourselves to literally change our minds. That is the meaning of repentance, the Greek understanding of, is that our mind actually evolves. The mind isn't just a fixed container. Our spiritual and moral development is our mind in evolution, that the container of the mind is actually changing and starts to see the self and others differently. The way that evolution happens is in that process of moving into disequilibrium with who we are, with how we understand ourselves. And in that disequilibrium, tolerating the puncture of our sense of self, the puncture to, our, to the world as we know it, to the disorganization that happens in that process and allowing that to allowing our minds to reorganize at a higher level of understanding, a deeper, truthful relationship with ourselves and reality. And that drives our forward movement, but requires humility or a loss of ego as we know it, or a loss of self as we know it, to find a deeper form of self, a deeper form of who we are. So, you know, I'll say one more thing and then I'll just open it up in case Emily or Linda uh, would like to, or anyone would like to say anything. But um, I think that, you know, the, it took in this story for the prophet Nathan, I mean, King David's goal was to basically cover this up and to try to erase the impact of his sins, or maybe a better way to say it, was to er erase any trace of evidence about who he actually was or what he was capable of doing to the point of literally killing a man to do it and um, and taking a woman to wife who may or may not have wanted that. We don't know, but it's hard to imagine she would have felt good about this choice. So he's trying to cover up the evidence of his, his evil and is able on some level to kind of pull it off, right? I mean, not that he's living in a peaceful, honest relationship with himself, but he's trying to pull it off. It takes the prophet Nathan to come to King David and doesn't 
confront him directly. And this is a very good therapeutic technique that, that, <laughs> that Prophet Nathan is utilizing here. He is actually telling him a story of someone else, right? So he talks about this story of a poor man who had just one little lamb who he treated and loved like a child, only to have a rich man who had tons of his own lambs come by and take the poor man's lamb to kill it and serve it up to his dinner guests. Okay, so hearing this idea, David is able to use his, our native moral judgment, okay, and say, well, I mean, he's merciless. He's like, kill the guy, okay? <laughs> he doesn't deserve to live. And um, Nathan responds with the famous words, you are the man, you are him, right? I sometimes have used this with clients who are in a self, you know, I do these things because my wife or my husband does these things that, you know, I can't, I, I would be better if they were better, right? I'm a great person. It's, they're the problem. Okay. We love those ideas. Um, but sometimes what I have said is, you know, if your son were to grow up and marry a woman who is doing what you are doing in your marriage, would you like your daughter-in-law? No. Okay. I mean, I've really had clients who were like, oh, heaven forbid. I no. Why not? Well, because she's, She's a martyr and she's self-focused and she, she wouldn't really love my son. And even though it's what they know they're doing, they have a way to justify their current level of development. But stepping back, they recognize it's not acceptable, right? And so it's that disequilibrium when we, when our own moral compass, we recognize we're in misalignment with what we really believe is true. That's what can if we stay awake and courageous, drive us into deeper reconciliation of what we believe is true, drive us into repentance, right? The, the Hebrew word for repentance is to come to ourselves, to our truer selves. The Greek form is to change our mind. And I think both are true, uh, truthful um, expressions of what the process of development and change requires. So before I say more, I just would like to open it up and just hear Esther, Emily, Linda, Chris, any one of you thoughts you're having about what I'm saying or. I had a thought, Jennifer, which is you led with the fact that the Lord loved David. And I think that's um, so important because the, the crisis that he needed to have, I mean, ideally he would have had a crisis of thought before the event yes. um, with Bathsheba, but the crisis that he had with Nathan after it had transpired um, is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yes. I'm not who I thought I was. I'm not, um, you know, the good guy in this story. I can't hide from it. It's, it's a truly terrifying moment. Yes. Um, I think that many of us have had in, at yes. some level. Um, and I, I think the thing that at least for me, and I think for many of us, um, makes that terror productive and tolerable is that we can still be loved yes. by God. And I, David somehow knew that. And you see that in the Psalms. Yes. That he struggled and sought um, ever after to um, be in the presence of that love and yes. feel, you know, um, worthy of it or just to to feel the experience of it, to see that in himself and others. And I think that um, 
you know, it sounds so trite, but love is, is, is what redeems us, you know, it's what redeemed him. He felt like he could be loved again, even after all of this had transpired. Um, and I think in our relationships with each other, the person that we're in conflict with, um, to believe that they can still love us makes change, you know, I think um, possible. Absolutely. I mean, you're capturing the, th the thesis um, for me, which is, yeah, that this ability to hold on to the truthfulness of who we are, which is both that we are beloved and sinners, that we are imperfect and flawed and, and valuable inherently. And the more we can hold that actually, the less, the more we can actually grow into the truth about ourselves. It's that lose yourself to find yourself lose your ego, lose your demand to kind of prove that you're worthy through a flawless ideal or a, you know, needing to hold yourself up as superior to others to find ourselves. That is the truth about who we are. There's both terror in it and relief in it, I think, at the same time, that there's actually like you can let go of all the pretense. Um, you know, I had a sibling who was kind of in a crisis and I'll blur the gender just to kind of keep it. Um, but the person said, you know, I've been walking around pretending like, you know, I've got two queens and a king. And <laughs> and the person says, I, I've got like a three, a five and a seven at best. <laughs> so that is like, I'm just, I wanted this fantasy that I'm doing so well. And really the truth of it is life is hard and I have deep limitations. And, but what the sibling was saying was like, there's also some relief in it. I don't have to lie to myself anymore. I don't have to pretend something anymore. And I can just deal with what's here. Mm -hmm. When I was rearing my uh, now adult children, when they were, very young, I sort of marinated them in, in Fred Rogers and mm. Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Love and there's the <clears throat> one of his many little songs was the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people yeah. who are bad sometimes. It's yeah. funny, but it's true. The same, isn't it for me? Isn't it for me like you? Something like that. Sorry, yeah. <clears throat> I'm pitchy. Um, and I remember having reading Bible stories to my kids and one night coming on the uh, David and Bathsheba story, which, as you wisely say, is maybe not one that kids should <laughs> be exposed to. <clears throat> but my... Uh, whichever child it was said, well, I don't understand this. Is David supposed to be a good guy or a bad guy? And then we both remembered Fred Rogers, <clears throat> who was channeling, uh, I suppose, the voice of God, that the very same people who are good sometimes are the very same people who are bad sometimes. And to hold that tension of mm -hmm. being beloved but also being imperfect yes, uh, is very powerful and difficult. It, it makes me also wonder why in our LDS society do we have 
such a priority on worthiness interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I don't get the message very much. I didn't grow up LDS, but I don't understand the message of uh, you can always be better. And that's your task on, on this planet is to be good, be good, be good, be good, be good and deny that there's any bad when mm-hmm. really it, in my opinion, it needs, it's healing and necessary to accept that we are both. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, just to the idea of kind of the cultural, I have a couple thoughts about it. One is, you know, I think it was Kohut, which was a post-Freudian theorist who talked about that we we live in these kind of splits, like the good mother and the bad mother. And the so there's the good people and then there's the bad people. And we want this black and white world. I remember when I was a little girl, I had a, <laughs> I don't know why, but I had a good foot and a bad foot. And I, and the, <laughs> The good foot, when I was tired of standing, could stand on top of the bad foot. <laughs> I have no idea why I created this split, but then one day I started to feel compassion for the bad foot. <laughs> and, you know, there was some deeper integration that maybe the good foot wasn't always a good foot. And I could kind of like see, I stopped doing that after a while. I can still with clients be like, well, who's the good one and who's the bad one? Like I can st- seriously sometimes still move into that simple minded idea Right. And it's a very, very tempting idea because I think it relieves us of our our own complexity. Like you say, Linda, that we are both good and bad to hold that reality is uncomfortable, I think, in part because in our young spiritual development, which most of us are in, actually, (laughs) we want a world in which we can earn our goodness. Right. So we kind of participate in the idea of worthiness interviews. We want a world in which we can say, I'm doing it better than the rest, you know, or or I'm just so good and so noble and and I've memorized all the scriptures in seminary and so on, because we want the idea that we can prove we're good. But also, I think we want to be the son, you know, the brother that in the prodigal son story, the one that thinks like, look, I've been here doing all the hard work and being the good guy. And then the, the, the profligate son, he still gets all the same love. Like, that's not fair. Right? And so I think a lot of us want the fantasy that there's a way to escape the inherent suffering and humiliation of life. Mm-hmm. And I do think there is value actually in having standards and expectations i don't think we need to call them worthiness interviews i think that's a problematic idea but i think that we there is value especially in early development to have structures and expectations um, that we need in order to internalize a moral code and internalize a sense of who we are but we do need to integrate and transcend that and grow into the deeper truth that comes when that system necessarily fails like even if we obey all the rules all we try to do everything right our liabilities and limitations will still show up and expose themselves to us and humiliate us if we're paying attention and being honest and that's a necessary spiritual process like obviously the more you can align yourself with truthful principles the you know, the more you can use what 
what those who've come before you have learned and save yourself learning it perhaps the hard way. But there's no way in my view to really escape the the developmental process of ultimately understanding we are all flawed and we are all valuable and we are all, I think this is really necessary to coming into any understanding of being one with one another to really grow out of any sense of hierarchy between us not that we don't matter but that we matter no more than anyone else that we are beloved and part of a process that's much bigger than ourselves and so um yeah so is there anyone else who had any thoughts or comments yeah i'd like to, i'd like to um sort of vamp off a comment that uh, andy pitcher davis made in the in the chat where she says the wholeness of david is one of the truest narratives in the old testament mm -hmm. and uh, my reaction or my thought was that I, I'm, I'm loving the way you've taken, you're taking this part of the Hebrew Bible, not in the Bathsheba direction, but in the, in the David direction. Hmm. Um, I tend to come to the scriptures expecting a hero story, hmm. a, a narrative about how wonderful the prophet or the king or the leader hmm. is. And this is so powerful, especially of what Nathan does. Mm. Uh, it's so powerful in not doing that, in, mm -hmm. in taking the beloved and showing him and calling him out mm. um, in a way that makes him makes him an everyman. I makes him what you're doing here, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. Someone I I can relate to David. I that 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 says some weird things. But mm -hmm. I can feel like this is an example I have to take into account. I have to think about because this is this is a story about the king. A story about you know as as much as I want to think good of myself. I mean, I'm not David, and even so, right? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah, and and maybe it's a different kind of hero story, perhaps, right? I mean, I think we want the hero story of the one that comes in and saves everyone and is above the human condition. And, um, but there's another kind of story of our fall is essential. Like there's all kinds of narratives in literature and scripture of falling from grace as a part of a larger story. Right, that there's a fall from this kind of um, um, ability to just kind of skate above the human experience. And that in that falling, we often find what's actually truthful about ourselves and the world. So um, let me just find myself here. There, uh, Richard Rohr wrote a favorite book of mine called Falling Upward. And in it, he teaches the spirituality of imperfection or what maybe he might call successful failure he says quote the genius of the biblical revelation is that it refuses to deny the dark side of things but forgives failure and integrates falling to achieve its only promised wholeness right right that we integrate and transcend right that we 
this is why repentance is so fundamental to growth is this self-awareness the humility in it and then we find something deeper and truer there's deep beauty and freedom in honesty and contrition right like it's this thing like sometimes when i've come into those moments myself they hurt so much they suck really i mean like i still want to avoid them always but there's also a beauty in it a kind of open-heartedness a deeper compassion for yourself and others a deeper awareness of the suffering that we all experience and you know there's a it's there's this kind of it's not it's not like a bright beauty but a dark beauty it kind of integrates both um david's confession in psalm 51 speaks to this create in me a pure heart O god and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me from your presence or take your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me then i will teach transgressors transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you right the just this kind of deep awareness of i want to be better i see who i am i want the good i want to be I want to be in deeper alignment with God and God's acceptance. And I think that's where we find a truer peace. It's, it's where we find the soul in ourselves and the soul in others. Um, Jennifer, could I just yeah. say one thing Please. at this moment? Yes. I'm so glad you read that Psalm. It's one of my favorites. Mm. It's, it's so beautiful and it makes me, um, in mind of uh, David puts me in mind a little bit of the sons of Alma um, and and Paul, but people who had deep need of repentance and who had angels come to them and tell them so, you know. And Nathan yeah. was in that role for David. Um, but for the for for most of us in real life, um, the angels are in disguise, right? Yes. They're people just like. Yes. You know, in our lives who, who don't always have the best intentions are not always right, but, right. but still come to us with important information about That's right. ourselves and about the ways that we need to change. And I think this is one of the hardest things in life is to, yes. to decide who to listen to yes. and, and when and what parts of that to listen to, because it does, it's also true that people, you know, gaslight us and tell us things that are sure. unkind and not useful. And those same people tell us things that are necessary and true and sometimes loving. Um, yes. And so I, how do you navigate that? I think is a question that I'm asking myself all the time and I don't have the answer to it. It's a constant struggle. But what I think is important is to be in the position of being a seeker. And yes. that allows you to be, I think you, you said this many years ago. I don't remember when Jennifer, but, but it I, it was something about an image of permeability where you have a cage around yourself that's um has structure and mm -hmm. strength but it's also permeable mm -hmm. and uh creating that filter is like you know just so important so that yes. you're a seeker and you're letting things in but you know yeah being critical about what it is you're letting in yeah so one of the yes it is one of those challenging dilemmas like if i listen to what you're saying 
will I lose myself in a way? Will I lose myself just in your view? And what if your view is not truthful? Or what if you're manipulating me? But on the other hand, if I resist any information about myself, then I may be in a self-deluded state. And like what you're saying, Emily, like the, the, the terrifying thing about life is that people can see us better than we can see ourselves, right? We can see each other better than, you know, our friends see themselves. And so there is this need in a way to be open to others, but they are imperfect and have their own agendas sometimes. So one of the ways that I teach this, but also something I've tried to do in myself is to say, I want to be open to what other people think because I want to know what I don't yet know. And this is when I'm being courageous, right? I want to know at least how they see me. It doesn't mean I must accept anything they say, but I do want to hold up what they say against my most honest self. Like ultimately I will decide if it's true. And I mean, a, a lot of times that's exactly what's happening is we see, that's what happened with, with David is that the story, Nathan tells this story and he says, you're the man. It's not that he just believes Nathan, he has a moment of recognition, a moment of, oh my gosh, I am that man. And it's exposed to me. I can't hide it from myself anymore. And so that's what drives the contrition. It's that when we are out of alignment with our truthful selves. So, you know, that sometimes helps me in them. Like I ultimately will decide, I will hold it up against my judgment. No one's making me think something or see something, but I will have the courage to be as honest with myself as I can. And that's still an imperfect process, but that's, the way you will, I think, facilitate your growth most and limit your suffering most is to be committed to honesty with yourself, even when it hurts, right? So, yeah. you You mentioned at the beginning that you were not <clears throat> focusing on Bathsheba's story. We're talking about David. Um, and I have written, a long poem in haiku, which seems like a, you know, how do you do that? But um, about Bathsheba, because rereading that story can fill me with such rage and, and righteous wrath and injustice. And um, so it was therapeutic for me to, to write it. Yeah, it doesn't, and, and I'll I'll read it here if you'll Please. allow me. Um, but remember that it's coming from the point point of view of someone who was really mad about what happened, as opposed to being gracious and generous to David to see him as a whole person. But mm -hmm. here we go. This is justice for Bathsheba in haiku. King David decides not to go to war this time. He'll sit this one out. Other soldiers go, including the kind Hittite, the loyal Uriah. David has wives and multiple concubines. Still, he feels randy. Alone on the roof, he spies Bathsheba bathing, ritually clean. What choice does she have? Bathsheba's Me Too moment. Pure and ripe, she goes, under coercion as a ewe lamb to slaughter, 
She must submit to his pride and thrust. What's love got to do with it? He takes what he wants. Add murder to lust, Uriah's strategic death, commandments be damned. The prophet Nathan foretells the consequences in vivid detail. Grief, gore, war, and woe, dead babies and fratricide, traitorous intrigues. The writer of Psalms weeps in valleys of shadows with no shepherd near. Divinity cries, O Bathsheba, my daughter, we will not forget. God's holy timing, many generations hence, rings out the evil. At last her blessing, great-grandson in the manger, Israel's salvation. That's lovely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the right story to tell about Bathsheba. And I think it's, you know, it, it, it for me, it speaks to even sin because a culture was immersed in a way of understanding women, that it was even a level of sin that one couldn't see within that context, right? Not fully, because it's a given that a king would have concubines and multiple women. I mean, it still was sinful in the sense of he's she's another man's wife, but that women of that day, I imagine, knew on an unarticulated level the kind of suffering that they managed not being treated as humans in their own right so it's it's a it's a lovely expression of that anger so jennifer i linda's linda's haiku is extended haiku is actually a setup for this before Linda read that poem, I was about to say this is the this is the nicest, kindest um, hellfire and damnation lesson or talk I've ever heard. You're 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 being so nice about it. And I I have um, and I know my reaction generally to being told repent or pay attention to your dark side or, or however that comes is, is not, my reaction is not very good. I, this, is, this is like the nicest approach. And, and then Linda comes through with the, well, I understand the anger. I understand where that poem comes from, but it also comes across as um, pretty accusatory and not the kind of thing I react well to. Mm -hmm. I, I guess, so maybe I'm talking to the therapist here and your comment about how Nathan does such a good job. <laughs> how, if you, if you see it in someone else, how do you do it? Well, the, the reality is, is when we sin, right? It isn't just about our spiritual progression. Our sin does harm others always. And that's one of the deeply painful parts of it is that even though it's human and natural, we do create suffering. And I think it's too much to ask people to be happy or tolerant of the suffering we've inflicted upon them through our limitation. So, one of the things I also do find in doing couples work is that 
someone will have done harmful things. And then they're trying to get their spouse to, you know, forgive as a way of, in a sense, not fully embracing the impact of their of their sin. And so it's a way to try to step away by saying, see me the way I want to see myself, see myself kindly, uh, see me kindly, see me with more compassion. Of course, there are situations in which, you know, I've clients who've been aggrieved in some way, and they make a life out of being in that self-righteous accusing position. And of course, that's also got its own sinfulness in it. Um, but the way out for clients is usually walking as honestly and wholeheartedly towards the impact of their of their self-deceived behaviors. That's how they find a cleansing within themselves and a cleansing within the marriage. And the stepping back is usually ego-driven, right? So now, why am I being so nice about it? Well, because we're all in this together, right? And if I am moving into self-righteous position with clients, first of all, it's not particularly effective, but it's also dishonest on some level because I don't know what I would have done had I been in that client's family experience, that client's biology, that client's marital experiences. So to say like, wow, what a loser, you know, <laughs> I think it's dishonest. I think it's not fair. I think you can say both it's, you're working against your peace in your life, in your marriage, your self-deception is costing you greatly. I am in a sense, when I'm doing a good job, trying to be the ghost of Christmas future for people because I want them to have a better Christmas. <laughs> I hope that people will self-confront to create deeper peace in themselves and in their lives. Um, but that's different. My lesser moments are moving into kind of simple-minded self-judgment uh, of others or a kind of uh, fantasy that I know I would do better because we often don't know what people are up against within themselves or what they are trying to face or handle, but we can be compassionate and truth tellers. And in marriage, being a truth teller is very, very important for a marriage growing, a truth teller about yourself and a truth teller about your partner. I mean, I think one of the deep challenges we have in marriage is that we want to go after our partners. Let's face it, we both have beams, okay? I don't know how many marriages you have a beam and your spouse actually only has a moat, okay? That's <laughs> still, uh, but you know, at least dealing with the fact like we both have beams, okay? And to be a, tr a really valuable truth teller is you're not just talking about your partner's beam. Often you're dealing with how you both have participated in a meaning together that's been harmful or limited, that you're willing to look at yourself as much as your spouse. But to love is to align with what's true and sometimes to say difficult things and to have hard conversations, not with the purpose of taking the other down and proving you're right, but with the purpose of dealing with who you both are so the marriage can grow, right? Like, Anyone who's listening to me has heard me say this too many times, but you know that 
that Einstein is purportedly said, I don't know if he actually did say this, but that you can't solve a problem at which at the level of intelligence that the problem was created. You have to bring your intelligence up to do that. And to do that, you have to see yourself and your relationships more truthfully. And that's a disorganizing process. But that's where you then have the ability to do differently, to see differently, to solve differently. And we often resist that in marriage, but that's where couples grow closer. That's how couples come to respect each other truthfully. That's how couples start to feel genuinely grateful for one another because you love me in spite of me. And what a gift that you accept me despite my destructive and, and harmful tendencies at times. And that is a great gift that you have loved me in spite of me. And we all, we're all there, right? Um, so let me just say a couple of thoughts and then we can end and then we can talk more for people who wanna join in. Um, but um, so I think this is also not only where we find ourselves and those we love, right? It's, it's in our suffering and our humility that we're able to really value one another more deeply to be more truly grateful for friendship and kindness and compassion is in knowing your own sinfulness. Um, it's also to have greater compassion and kindness towards others. Um, but it's also where we find God, right? It's the love and grace, as Emily said so beautifully, are God's answers to our sin. That every time God forgives us, God is saying, that his own rules don't matter as much as his relationship with us, the relationship he wants to create with us. And so it's the really the good news of, of our faith. Not that grace can erase the harm that sin causes, but it enables healing to take place. And it fosters a deeper wisdom in us and deeper capacity for compassion and grace for ourselves and one another. So I leave you these thoughts in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, I feel like I just got a free couples therapy session because I have a whole long <laughs> thing to go apologize to my husband for. Um, I just wanted to share one quick thought that I had. I, I think in our, our modern culture and dialogue, we want to do one of two things when we run into the problematic aspects of a popular figure's character. Either we want to do some mental gymnastics and apologetics for this, you know, they were a person of their time or, you know, they experienced this abuse and therefore they did these things. So, you know, be soft on them or we want to unilaterally label them as a bad person. And mm -hmm. what I love about what you did here today is you gave us a different paradigm for approaching those circumstances that mm -hmm. you really point out the power of and that mm -hmm. someone can change a country for the better or change a community for the better and do some really horrible things that also hurt that country or hurt, hurt you know, their community. And we yes. can sit with that and we can learn from that because if we don't, we can't do that for ourselves, that how we see others and how we see ourselves is really what I drew from your, your comments. And I deeply appreciate that. Yes, We're going to have a closing prayer now. And as always, we'll have our after hallway talk. So anyone that wants to stay and ask more questions and engage, we'll usually go for somewhere between half an hour, 45 minutes for that one. 
Um, so, but if you need to leave, we just want to wrap up these thoughts a little bit more conclusively. So Emily um, Updegraff is our closing prayer. She's a Utah, she has Utah roots, but has lived in Chicago area for over 20 years. She works as a university administrator and lives with her husband, two children, and a dog who is very attached to her. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Emily, you're up. Dear God, we're very grateful to have been here together to have discussed uh, these important ideas and I'm thankful for the scriptures and this whole picture that we were given in the case of David. Please help us to remain um, open to learning, open to the spirit, and open to loving each other and to, to accepting love from others and from you. We're thankful for the beauty of the earth in the summertime and pray that we can spend some time enjoying it today and pray that the spirit can go with each of us um, from this meeting and say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.